This is Crossroads with Clayton King. There are so many things in life that you can never really know for sure. There are some things you'll never get complete clarity on. But when it comes to your salvation, this is not something you should leave open-ended. I want you to know that you're a Christian. So how can you know? How can you actually become a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, in this message that I recently preached at Anderson University, where I serve as minister in residence, I answered this question for the student body. And I wanna help you answer this question right now. Of all the things in life that you need to nail down and be certain about, this is ultimately the most important thing. Where will you spend eternity? And you can know that for sure when you repent of your sin and believe that Jesus Christ loved you enough to die in your place and that he was raised from the dead for your salvation. That's how you know you're a Christian, when you have actually received that gift by faith. And that's what I'm gonna talk about in this simple but profound message that I preached recently to several thousand college students right here at Anderson University, where we live and where we do ministry at Crossroads. I hope this will be encouraging to you, and I also hope that some people will nail down their salvation at the end of this message. I wanna answer a question today. Really felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to preach on this. I wanna answer a question today that I'm assuming most of you at some point have maybe thought about. Most of you have probably answered this question. I wanna answer the question of how you become a Christian. Because there are, in our culture and in our world, lots of differing opinions on this one thing. But I wanna be so clear today, there is no question that you will ever have to answer that is more important than this one, that has more ramifications and consequences than this one. There's no question more important to your eternity than this one. So I was raised in a home that loved the Dallas Cowboys, so I became a Dallas Cowboys fan. That's not how you become a Christian. You don't just uh, become a Christian because you're born into a, a Christian home or a Christian family. It's good that you're raised in a Christian home, and a lot of us were. I was actually raised in a Christian home. I've told this before hundreds of times. I actually had like three church traditions. My parents were Southern Baptist. I went to a Presbyterian Christian school, and my grandfather was Pentecostal holiness. So I had a lot of religion growing up. I was actually adopted when I was a couple of months old and my, my dad was my Sunday school teacher. Uh, my mom was a, a choir member at our little Baptist church in Simpsonville. And so I was raised in a Christian home and a lot of folks think that's how you become a Christian. You're, you're raised in a Christian home or you're born into a Christian family. That's what a lot of people think. Well, because uh, when I ask people this question, I actually asked someone uh, recently at the gym, uh, when did you become a Christian? And the guy's response was, I was born one. Now, I have some Hindu friends. I've been to India a lot with my wife, Shari, who's a student here at AU, getting her master's of divinity. Shari and I have been to India many, many times. And I have some Hindu friends. I actually uh, met a Hindu yesterday in Greenville. Uh, my wife and I were there for, to, to run an errand. And when you ask a Hindu, why are you a Hindu? A Hindu from India or Bangladesh or any other culture would say, I was born a Hindu. 
I have some Muslim friends. Shari and Jacob and Jojo and I were in Ireland and Scotland this summer for uh, vacation and we had an Uber driver named Muhammad. And I asked him if he was Muslim because his name was Muhammad. And he said, yeah. And I asked him what he believed and he was very open to talk about religion. Uh, By the way, most of the world is open to talking about religion. It's just in America where people get so offended so quickly and easily when we talk about religion oftentimes. And he shared with me what he believed about the Quran and about Muhammad and about the prophet. And I said, do you mind if I share with you what I believe about Jesus and about the gospel? Do you know the word, the gospel? And when I asked him how he became a Muslim, he, he sort of laughed. He said, I think you know I was born a Muslim because his parents were Muslim. And so there's some misunderstanding about how you become a Christian because some people think, well, I was born into a Christian home. I was born into a Christian family. That's how I became a Christian. But becoming a Christian is different than becoming a student at Anderson University or becoming a varsity football player or becoming a cheerleader or becoming an English major or becoming a kinesiology major. Becoming a Christian is not something you're born into. Becoming a Christian is something you are reborn into. You have to be born again. You really have to be, you have to be radically changed. It is literally the essence of the Christian faith that we believe we're not born into salvation, we're born into sin. Everybody intuitively knows that that's true. And I'm gonna read some scripture from Ephesians chapter two here in a moment. Everybody knows that we're, we're born into sin, even if we don't like to think about it. Uh, I always like to use this example. If you don't believe that everybody was born a sinner, just either get married, have kids, or go to college and get a roommate. We all intuitively know this. So we're not born Christians, we're born lost and broken and we have to have something radical that takes place to save us. So I wanna talk about not only how I became a Christian, I wanna talk about how anyone becomes a Christian and I wanna read the scripture from Ephesians chapter two and let the Bible speak for itself. I'll say this, I don't know any 10 verses in the whole New Testament that more simply and clearly explain to us what God did for us in Jesus Christ in order to save us from our sin. This is beautiful. The power, the majesty of these 10 verses, honestly, for me, it's breathtaking. Paul writes this to Ephesians, to the Christians there in the ancient city of Ephesus, a place that I visited twice and Shari and I will be there again next year. In modern day Turkey, there were believers in this city. This was a pagan city. It was a port city. There was a goddess there named Artemis of the Ephesians. There was and still is there today an amphitheater that would seat thousands and thousands of people. There was an entire industry that was built around this cult of this goddess, this fertility goddess that that oftentimes people believed would bring them all sorts of blessing and fertility and financial gain. And Paul would go there, Paul would preach the gospel there, but Paul would also write these words to a small group of believers who was doing their best to be faithful to the resurrected son of God. And here's what he says in Ephesians chapter two, verse one. He says, and you were dead. Hold up. 
That does not sound friendly, encouraging, and safe for the whole family. This is kind of rough. He literally says you were dead. How were you dead? How was I dead? In your trespasses and sins. So look, our problem is not that we have issues. My problem is not that I cuss too much. Your problem is not that you drink too much. The problem that you struggle with with pornography, that's a problem, it's not your main problem. My problem of insecurity is not my main problem. It is a problem, but it's not my main problem. My jealousy, your unwillingness to forgive somebody, or your, your struggles with anxiety, my struggles with depression, those are problems, but they're not the main problem. The main problem is that every single one of us is a rebellious sinner that does not want to submit to the love and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. That's our main problem. Our main problem is that we're all idolaters, that we all wanna put ourselves on the throne of our life, that we want our own way, we want our own pleasure, we wanna do things according to our rules and we don't wanna naturally submit to God. And that is why Paul says you were dead, dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of the world and according to the prince of the power of the air or the power of the spirit that is now working in the disobedient. This is one of the names given to the devil in the New Testament. He is the the spirit of the age or the prince of the power of the air. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out all the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. In other words, according to verse three, everybody's a sinner. Everybody needs forgiveness. Don't feel like you're the only one being singled out. We're all in the same boat. Says in the next verse, but God. Now watch how Paul describes God. But God, who is rich in mercy, So a lot of us think that God is rich in wrath and we are under God's wrath when we're still sinners, unrepentant and rebellious, but God is not known primarily by his wrath. God is known primarily, identified primarily by his mercy, by his grace, by his love, because he is rich in love. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive. Now, do you see the transition? He says in verse one that we were dead, but God, because of his great love for us, makes us alive. That's the opposite of dead. Dead in sin, alive in Christ. He has made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. And then I love this verse. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, that means the future that you can't see, the future that we're all a little bit worried about, the future where we don't know what's gonna happen, the future where people are talking about a potential World War III, the future where over the next year, we're gonna hear endlessly politics, election, politics, election, the future where we don't know what AI is gonna do. Are we gonna lose our souls to, to computers or is it gonna turn into Skynet, the original Terminator? In all the future that you can't see and that you can't know, in the coming ages, guess what? You are not 
not only, if you're a Christian, raised up through the resurrection of Jesus, but you are seated with him in heaven. You've got a guaranteed home when you're saved. A guaranteed place that Jesus has been preparing for you and me since the moment he ascended and went to heaven. See John chapter 14. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm gonna come again. I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna take you back with me so that where I am, there you can be forever and ever and ever. Sounds like a pretty good deal. I'm in. I'm in. So, so now he has saved us. He has seated us with Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display his immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now let's look at the last couple of verses and then I want to share a few thoughts. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. We are saved by grace, through faith. We'll be back in a minute to finish up this message. But before we do, I wanted to tell you, roots are important and our ministry has put our roots down at Anderson University in South Carolina. It's the largest Christian and private institution in the entire state. We moved here in 2014 because we believed in the mission of this Christian institution. It's a really special place. There's 38 concentrations, 46 minors, 59 major degree programs, and they also have 18 masters and doctoral degrees. So whether you're a high school student trying to discern where to go after you graduate, or an adult that wants to get some more education online, check out andersonuniversity.edu and you could be really, really encouraged and prepared for life, ministry, career at this great Christian institution. That's andersonuniversity.edu. Grace is the, is, the, is the vehicle that carries us to Jesus. Faith is the means by which we exercise a trust in God, believing that Jesus Christ is good enough to save us. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not just grace, it's God's grace and your faith. It's not just faith, it's your faith, God's grace. And do you know that even the faith to believe in Jesus is a gift of his grace? Even the ability to believe in Jesus. So let me make this real practical in the eight minutes, nine minutes I've got left. How do you then become a Christian? What's required of us? Because depending on how you were raised, depending on what you know, preacher you may have heard or what influence you may have had in high school or, or what someone may have taught you or what school you attended or what sermons you listened to, you may be a little confused. I know I was. Because growing up Baptist, I thought getting baptized saved me. And then going to the Presbyterian Christian school, I honestly thought memorizing catechisms and Bible verses would save me. And then I went to the Pentecostal church with my grandfather and I thought speaking in tongues and acting crazy saved me. And I had all of these different voices in my head, all these different thoughts like, how do I really know I'm a Christian? And then when I began to just read the Bible 
and listen to my pastor teach the scripture, I realized I can't save myself. Jesus did that for me. That's called his grace. Grace means you get something that you don't deserve. I've been married to my wife going on 25 years. I don't deserve her. I tell her every day I love her. I don't deserve her. She's the greatest gift of grace God has ever given me other than my salvation. God gave her to me. I didn't earn her. I did not work for her. There's no way I could have ever picked a woman better for me than Shari King. She is God's grace to me. But I had to have enough faith to say, I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna ask her out on a date. I'm gonna ask her to be my girlfriend. And then eventually I'm gonna buy a ring and I'm gonna pay cash for it. I put a ring on her finger. I had enough faith to ask her, will you be my wife? She had enough faith to say yes. It wasn't my effort that brought her into my life, but it was my faith in what God had provided for me that made me a husband. It is God's grace that provided you the way to be saved. What was the provision? Jesus was your provision. Jesus was my provision. Jesus lived a perfect life. He never committed a single sin. Can you imagine? He never retaliated when people attacked him. He kept the law perfectly so that none of us would have to brag or boast, but also so that you would know you don't have to be perfect to win God's favor. You don't. It doesn't justify your sin. It doesn't justify me being angry. It doesn't justify drunkenness or addiction. What it gives me though is hope that when I struggle with any number of sins that I struggle with, I know that Jesus loves me, has proven his love for me. And because I have repented of my sin and put my faith in Jesus, he doesn't abandon me or throw me aside every time I mess up. He loves me. So to be a Christian means that you repent of your sin and you believe this good news is actually good for you. You put your faith in it. So I was, I was 14 when this happened to me. I'd been raised in church and I'd been baptized when I was seven and I prayed a prayer when I was a little kid. I, I didn't want to go to hell. I, w- I went to one of those churches where Man, like every single Sunday, we, got, we had an invitation to, to come to Jesus, to get saved. And all my friends had done it, and I was the last one because I'm a little stubborn, a little hard-headed. I'm a, I'm a late adapter. I, I just, I was like, no, I don't want to do that. And then finally, I was like, I, I don't want to go to hell, and I want to take communion on Sundays. So, yeah, I'm going to go, went forward, prayed a prayer, got dunked in water. It wasn't real. I didn't understand it. I didn't mean it. I had no clue what I was doing. Lots of people get saved at five, six, and seven years old. Lots of people do. I did not. I had a head knowledge of Jesus. I knew facts about him in my head. I didn't have a relationship with him in my heart. And so at age 14 in the eighth grade, the Lord had been working on me. All those seeds that my pastors had planted, all, my, all those seeds my mom and dad had planted in my life, they had, they had been in my heart for years. And then a drug dealer got kicked out of public school, came to our Christian school uh, for about the first, I don't know, year, about six months to a year. He'd come to school high and drunk and then all of a sudden he gets saved and he spoke in chapel one Wednesday morning. And that was the catalyst that God really used to open my heart up to what it meant to really become a Christian. This was the first time in my life that I realized I can't do this on my own. That's not how you become a Christian. I wasn't born into Christ because I was born into a Christian family. That's not how you become a Christian. I'm not a Christian because I go to church. That's not how you become a Christian. I've got to actually ask Jesus to come into my life. I've got to actually put faith in his grace 
for him to save me. I've got to actually taste and see the Lord is good. It's the way I became a Cowboys fan as a kid, watching games with my dad. I would watch them win. I watched them win games against the Steelers. I watched them beat teams in the Super Bowl. I saw them in action and it did something to my heart. On an infinitely greater scale, the way that we become a Christian is we watch what God did in Jesus Christ. We read about his crucifixion in the Bible. We read about how he treated people. We read about how he included outcasts. We read about how he defended a woman caught in the act of adultery when her accusers wanted to kill her in the temple and Jesus defended her and saved her life. We see how Jesus welcomed a sinful tax collector named Zacchaeus that everybody hated and dignified him by going to his house and eating a meal at his table. Here's how you become a Christian. You see who Jesus was, you experience what Jesus did, and then you decide, I wanna be a Christian, I want Jesus to come into my life. I believe that his great love for me is what motivated him to send Jesus for me. I believe that he is rich in mercy. I believe that he has set me apart for things he wants me to do. I believe I have an assignment in my life to make a difference, to make the world better, to shine light in a world that seems like it gets darker by the day. I believe that God loves me and cares for me. I believe he sent Jesus to die on my behalf. And so then, what's to keep me away from becoming a Christian? Nothing. There's nothing that can stop you or me from not only becoming a Christian, but living a Christian life. Because here's the good news. The same gospel that Paul writes about in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that saves us from our sin and makes us a Christian, is the same gospel that continues saving us, that sustains you, that encourages you, that gives you assurance of the pardon of sin when you mess up. That same gospel that saves you, keeps you in Jesus. And it's that gospel that saved me when I was 14 years old. I was in a little youth rally in Greer, Greer, South Carolina. I don't even remember the name of the church. And I was probably halfway back, probably about the middle of the row. And that night for the first time, I just understood that God had loved me with this rich mercy and that I was dead in my sin and that Jesus could raise me to life. And that night I, I literally stood up out of my seat and I went to an altar and I got on my knees and I asked Jesus to save me. And the key part I believe that so many people misunderstand is that you have to ask. Please hear me before I pray. You have to ask Jesus to save you. He doesn't do it against your will. He won't force his way into your life. He doesn't do it by osmosis. He doesn't do it by virtue of your parents. You have to actually ask. There's a lot of reasons I'm married to Shari. I love her, she's wonderful. I feel like God called us to be together as one flesh. But on a practical level, let me tell you why we're married. Because I asked her to marry me. If I had never asked her to marry me, we would not have a relationship today. If you wanna know that you're a Christian, and many of you have already done this, most of you have, you have to ask Jesus to save you. He's ready, he's already done the work because of his rich mercy 
and his great love for you, he's already provided the provision and paved the way by his grace through your faith, faith that he gave you to believe in him. Hey, if this message has encouraged you or if this radio ministry has blessed you in some way, could I ask you to do us a favor? Take a minute to send us an email and just let us know. It means a lot to our team. Just go to claytonking.com and click on contact. claytonking.com and send us an email to let us know how God has spoken to you through this episode or through any of the teaching podcasts that you have heard right here. It would encourage us so much to know that we're helping you know Jesus better. If you'd like to hear this message again, send it to a friend, or learn how to take a next step in your walk with Jesus, check us out at ClaytonKing.com.